Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. By the time we got there and I got up to the top of it, I remember just standing and looking over the edge and massive lump in my throat. It's the biggest lava lake on earth. And it's one of the most terrifying places that I've ever been. Welcome to Terra Incognita, the adventure podcast. This particular episode features another unsung hero, Aldo Kane. Instagram will tell you that he's an explorer and an adventurer. He will tell you that he works in safety and wears a hard hat and a high-vis vest. The reality is that he's an ex-Royal Marine sniper and does extreme and hostile location security, safety and logistics for some of the top TV production companies in the world. He's looked after Tom Hardy, Henry Cavill and Adrian Brody. It's our longest interview yet, and I've been looking forward to it for a really long time. It could very easily have been much longer. This podcast is supported by Firepot Food, who are a fantastic grassroots company based in Dorset, on the south coast of England. They produce dehydrated meals with outdoors people in mind. They're very conscious of where they source their ingredients and the sustainability of the packaging. And I know that Aldo himself is testing the food on his next expedition in a few weeks' time. If you'd like to try it for yourself, there's a link to a discount code in the show notes at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. Right, over to Aldo. So, uh, my name is Aldo Kane, obviously. Um, I am 41, although still think I'm probably about 16. Um, I come from a village called Cowinning in Ayrshire, which is, um, which is basically where I grew up. Uh, it's right on the coast. It's right next to Arran uh, and some of the other islands there, which is my old stomping ground from back in the day. Um, grew up there till the age of 16, then joined the Royal Marines. Stayed in the Royal Marines for 10 years um, as a sniper. Uh, and then left the Marines, went offshore for a few years and then got into doing ropes and, and various other bits and bobs of, of work up there. And now run a company called Vertical Planet, which to provide safety in remote, hostile, extreme environments for television and film. That's the quick version. That's the quick version. So the long version. Um, what was what was childhood like? What was it like growing up in Kilwinning? Yeah, um, Alan, Aaron being so close. Kilwinning's got super super history of. Um, I think it's the is it the number. Nothing lodged. There's there's some very old connections to the abbey there, and, um, but anyway, growing up there, I'm one of five children. So there's myself, my twin brother Ross, who was also in the Royal Marines uh, with me, uh, my sister who joined the Air Force, uh, and then my two younger brothers. One's a scientist who now works in TV, and one's an art teacher. Um, so uh, five of us grew up normal normal upbringing, normal house, um, and just spent most of the time outdoors, which I've got my dad to thank really for that, for getting us into the scouts and into the cadets. 
at a super young age. Beavers, Cub Scouts, normal sort of outdoorsy upbringing in, in Scotland, I guess. It sounds like a lot of fun. Let's talk a bit about the Marines then. So what was the motivation for a 15-year-old to join the Marines? So the Royal Marines, I guess the, the, the full name Royal Marine Commandos, um, are the UK's elite fighting force. Um, we are part Navy, part Army, um, and we spend a lot of time on boats, but we become experts um, in theory at fighting and operating in hostile environments, so jungle, desert, arctic, mountains, um, and maritime. And that, from a very young age, so I was in scouts and I was in the, the cadets, and, and that kind of forged this um, craving for the outdoors. It didn't forge you know, a want to be in the Marines and a want to, to sort of go to war at all. That was the furthest thing from my mind at that time. But growing up in Ayrshire, in Scotland at, at that time, uh, you know, there wasn't a huge amount of options for someone like me who um, is not academic or at the time wasn't academic, you know, a sort of broad brush, sort of very, very average at best, not getting picked for football and PE and not doing very well in maths, blah, blah, blah. Um, so I guess for me, the motivation was I wanted to join the military because that gave me options of travel, gave me options of courses of further education, which were more vocational as opposed to, um, as opposed to sort of academic. And and for me, so, I, so the way that I am, I went to the careers office and I said to the guy there, which is the hardest force to get in? Um, and he was, I think he was a para, so he obviously said the parachute regiment. And uh, then I did my own research and <laughs> it's going to put people's back up. But I did my own research and then thought, well, actually. I think it's the Royal Marines are the harder one to get into and I don't have to join the army first um, and then you know I guess from there I can specialise uh, but but basically my twin and I went up to the careers office at 15 and a half uh, and we said we want to join the Marines and the guy was like well you need to do 10 pull-ups and we already kind of knew that, that we had to do it and we were only up to about 7 pull-ups at that time um, so obviously they they told us to go away and come back when we could do it so three months later I went up we both did all the pull-ups and we at 15 and nine months which is super young I don't know if that's still the case now that you can sign up for the Marines at that age um, so anyway the process is you, you sort of you do that then you do a three-day potential recruits course which my brother and I did when we were 16 I sort of left halfway through my exams my um, GCSEs to do that but in my head, that was like, that's what I want to do. You know, there's no point messing around with the, the sort of school stuff because, you know, I can do that later. And also what I want to do is get fit and join the Marines. That's what I want to do. And so we did the potential recruits course. We both passed that at the age of 16, which is super young. Um, and then I got loaded on in the September that year. So when I was 16, I joined Limston, the Commander Training Centre, Commando School down in Devon. So I went from being like a paper boy and a milk boy, delivering the Sunday papers and, and milk to, to going straight into trying to become a commando um, at the age of 16. It was a big surprise to me because in my head, it was like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm motivated to do that. But everyone else that I was there with in training, uh, the age generally between the age of probably 20 and 23. So I was a big bit younger than them my bones still not properly developed and uh, and not mentally developed either really uh 
and so yeah, I, jo- I joined the Marines at the age of 16. My twin joined two years later. He stayed and finished school and joined two years later. That must have hit you like a freight train just suddenly arriving in Limpston. And... It's different. Uh, obviously, I'd been in the cadets and had a little bit of discipline, but when you step off that train at Commando Training Centre, Royal Marines, Limpston, and you're 16 and you've got your bag and you're sort of going to become a commando. And I look at 16-year-olds now and I think, like, you are super young, you know. Yeah, I, I just think they look too young to be doing that sort of thing. But that's it, you know, you get off and you're straight into, I think, the longest infantry training in the world, bar none. You know, it's, I don't know what it is now, 32, 33 weeks long. And that takes you from being you know, a, a complete civilian right the way through to being a commando at the end of the day, where you can then go and join a fighting unit and then you learn all the other skills that make you a commando, like being able to survive and fight in the jungle, Arctic, mountains. Um, so all of everything that I use now, skill-wise, the seed was planted when I was in the Marines about how to how to conduct myself, how to how to train myself, how to motivate myself soft skill wise and then some of the harder skills like technical how to do an ice axe arrest how to ski how to climb how to do a cliff assault um, and that sort of thing so it is um it's a bit of a shock to the system um but i you know at that time i wasn't i wasn't prepared for it but i wasn't unprepared for it. i didn't have another job so when you're up all night scraping the floor after a full day's work and you're scraping all the polish off with your bayonet that's been laid down over the last three weeks um i wasn't thinking god i wish i was doing something else because actually all i had been doing before was delivering the sunday papers and that was a pain in the ass um you know you've got the two bags over there you've got your grifter or your your chopper or whatever and you've got all the sunday supplements i would rather be scraping the floor um and so to me i didn't have any other frame of reference to compare it against and I thought, well, this is this is fine. I'm getting fit. I'm getting paid. You know, just getting fed four times a day. That's good. It's an easy life compared to being a paper boy. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, what was life like once you passed out and once you were a Royal Marine? Because I think public perception is often that you're either at war in inverted commas, or you're sat on the base counting bullets and shining shoes. Um. Yeah, I mean, I can only speak from my experience of being in the Royal Marines. It's very different to the Army and it's very different to the Navy and it's very different to the Air Force. We are potentially quite a strange breed of people that spend a lot of time naked, drunk and fighting. Um, <laughs> that That's basically not really with ourselves, but um, yeah, we are a very strange bunch of people. You know, there's, it's, it's quite a sight to see 30 massive blokes dressed in suspenders and stockings sort of out knocking around town on a Friday night <laughs> but it's very much the ethos of work hard play hard that's it you know you're, you're going on operations for six months you're going on exercise for for three months you're on ship for a year um, you very much have to be able to work with all the people around about you and actually that's a big part of what I do now still comes from that ability to be able to work with other people and I guess if you we use this sort of big words that are floating around now, but empathy and understanding about your your bivy partner or your buddy. And it's it's that thing now where, you know, I'm on a portal ledge with someone and, you know, I'm not just making my own food or scran, as we say in the Marines. I'm not just sat there making my own scran and sort my own shit out. You know, I'm, I'm asking you first. And I'm like, Matt, do you need something done? And I'm, you know, and I'll sort you out or I'll get your bag out and sort your stuff out while you get the get the food on. Yeah. 
Um, and that, that's taught to you at a very young age in, in the Marines. They call it Commando Spirit, which is, they don't really teach it to you. They just tell you at the start, this is a Commando Spirit. But actually, by the end of your training and the end of your time that you've served, it all becomes second nature. And that's courage, determination, unselfishness, cheerfulness in the face of adversity. Those four things, um, those four things I call on all the time, on all the expeditions and all the filming trips that we're doing, and even in just daily life. You know, courage, determination, not giving up, just not stopping, having that drive. And probably for me, the biggest one is unselfishness, you know, is, is that ability to look after someone else first, knowing that you may or may not get looked after yourself. So the softer skills are what I take more away from being in the Marines than, than actually the ability to run 20 miles and shoot my rifle at the end of it and, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, and you, you talk about the commando spirit. I read something online that you've written about managing fear. Now, how do you think your time in the military has helped you? It's not removing fear, but how you manage fear when you're doing what you do. Yeah, we, by default, the job of being a commando means at the sharp end, running into bullets or, or whatever that is, you know, that to, to sort of put it in a layman's terms, you know, you're at the pointy end of, of an attack, say, for example. Um, the way that most of us would deal with fear is, is that it gets, we don't not feel it. We all become very scared at what we're doing um, on operations or on exercise or something that you've been asked to do. Um, but it's how we deal with it that makes a difference. It's not being paralysed by it. It's understanding that that is normal. And the physiological feelings that you're feeling in your body are not necessarily that you're a scaredy cat or that you're a coward. It's, it's a physiological um, feeling in your body or, or it's your body sort of providing you with the assets and the tools that you need to get the rounds down, you know, to pick a mate that's been shot up and, and run with him for 400 metres or whatever else, you know. So it's, I guess it's understanding that. And you the more you do, the more you build a, a solid foundation of I've been here before, I understand this is fucking dangerous, you know, I cannot you know, I, I can't make it any other sort of, I can't make it any less uh, dangerous and we just have to do this. There's very few other jobs in the world that you know, you are actually, actually risking your life, you know, the expedition stuff that we do now, if we were if we were, if we were running into a hail of bullets for example like you would do in that job in the expedition world then you would call it off wouldn't you you know no one wants to die on an expedition i don't think the people that i've met anyway don't want to die on an expedition but we don't have that choice when you're fighting you're doing a job um and whether you come back or whether you don't you know that's the job it's very interesting the crossover between this and i think mountaineering and particularly like mountain expeditions because often you know, if things go wrong in Antarctica these days, you can press the red button, you can get taken out, and, you know, there's a good chance of... It's happened a lot this season. People have been pulled out because they're unwell. Yeah. And, you know, that's a brilliant thing. But that's not always the case for the mountaineering expeditions, and there seems to be quite a lot of contrast between... I think it... Uh, I th certainly think there's a lot, lot to be said for having that confidence and courage in your own conviction. You know, you're a team, you're a small unit, you're off to do this job, and, you know, you're well prepared. You've got all your shit in one sock you know what you're about to do and if something you, you sort out all the subjective risks dangers hazards you sort all that stuff out by being well trained well fed well slept you know well read 
And then the objective dangers are you're on a big wall, you know, it's dangerous, a chunk of rock comes off and hits you in the head, you're going to die. You know, that's, that's simply it. But the more prepared and better prepared you are for that and your systems when something does go wrong, which the Marines teach us quite a lot about, is, is having these plans and systems in place when something does go wrong is how do we react? What is it? You know, do I step up to the next level job up sideways, left and right? Um, and so it's about understanding the system. If you're on a big wall, if you're on a caving expedition or going into sinkhole or paddling across the Atlantic, it's knowing, you know, it's not that myopic view of I'm doing this and this is my job and that's all I do. It's like, what does Matt do? Why does he always go into that part of his bag every night to do something with a camera? I want to know what that is in case something happens. Yeah. That I can then do that, not saying like you get hit in the head, but something happens and you, you know, in the heat of the moment, you're like, get this. And you're like, well, I don't know what that is. And so it's just about, I guess that side of it, the Marines do teach you very uh, sort of good lessons in how to be prepared and how to deal with, how to deal with the shit when the shit goes down. You know, and I, I guess ultimately, you know, the, the phrase is no plan survives first contact with the enemy or everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face. You know, that's when you then need to step up and that's where having all of this background knowledge and training, 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 training so that when something does happen, you're not thinking, you're not sort of going through the cognitive process of I've got to do this, I've got to do that. You know, the rounds come down and you've done 10 things yourself and helped someone else before you've even realized what you're doing because you're then removing yourself from that situation to then look at the bigger picture right i need to do this i need to do this you know i need to do these three things to survive the next five minutes i need to do these 10 things to survive the next hour what are they um so i guess it i'm probably rambling on a bit but it does the marines do teach you quite a lot about admin logistics all the boring stuff that most people i work with you know find me particularly boring about but it's that sort of stuff that underpins and is the foundation on an expedition or on a trip or on you know something i always think like why would you if you're doing this big massive thing and you spent loads of time getting there and loads of money getting there why would you not just have that last little bit of planning or prep that that allowed for the ultimate ultimate best chance and the best set of results um I suppose in the early days I've been on a few trips where something stupid like forgetting a piece of kit you know in the marines you forget a bit of kit or you forget to do a drill someone could die uh, and I suppose very rarely in, in the rest of the world there's, there's so much emphasis being placed on a piece of kit or a thing but in the expedition world it, that can be you know that can be turning up in Antarctica with the wrong type of food or you know the wrong water pumps in somewhere else or you know not the right batteries you know, so many no spare tent pole no spare tent pole or yeah. ability to fix it yeah yeah so what is it that appeals about all of this stuff because you speak quite passionately about the headspace and the mindset why does that appeal to you the headspace and the mindset was never a thing it was just I was going to join the Marines I was very focused I wanted to become a sniper quite a young age not because uh of what a sniper's 20 percent job is is to shoot someone actually it's, it's a massive job out with that and in my head if i got to become a sniper in the royal marines i'd sort of reached the very elite level of field craft and self-confidence that i could rely on myself to be able to get myself in and out of the shit you know if i need to um and so that 
so at that time I don't think it was mindset it's only in the last few years that I've started to do reading more into why I was like that why why was I able to become one of the youngest snipers in the military at that time in the UK because you know what was it that made me sort of get to that point um, and it's very much what I suppose the way that I am now when I think just go at something go at something hard and stay committed to it until either you achieve it or it becomes unachievable you know it's so I guess the mindset to me is more about just getting out and getting on with stuff and, and trying as much as you can. And so when you came out of the military, what was the, you know, you walk out of the door for the last time, what's the feeling? Um, so when you when you leave the military, it's, it's a funny one because you, you've been part of this elite frontline club. You know, it's the Peter Pan Club. It's the, it's one of the most exclusive clubs on the planet and the, the bonds forged in in war fighting as they are on expedition are, are second to none and so to leave that behind and walk out the door and close the door and you no longer have 4,000 men behind you metaphorically speaking you walk into a situation and you're on your own um, some people take it very very differently to how I did um, and there's there's a huge amount of homeless people on the streets in London and around the UK that are struggling with post-traumatic stress uh they're struggling with not being able to really look after themselves after having been in the military um i mean the, the numbers are, are staggering as to the amount of people that are actually homeless that were in the military and including the marines and paras and special forces um and so it's it's, it's staggering it's you know it absolutely bewilders me how that can happen but it does and it's allowed to happen but um for me it meant that, I suppose it gave me the confidence of being in the Marines, gave me quite a lot of confidence to, to forge forward and go into the sort of areas that I'm in now. But you very definitely feel vulnerable, left out, forgotten, lost, no direction. And it takes a long time to be able to sort of figure your own path out. And it's very easy to come out the military and, and jump into another service, police, fire brigade, because we're well suited to it, you know, it's hard graft, it's not sat behind an office desk flying a sort of mahogany bomber, you're, you're sort of getting on with it and, you know, you're, you're out and at it and staying busy. Um, or getting on the circuit, a lot of people go out and work in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and places like that doing security, maritime. Um, but I think for me it was very much started to think more about what I was doing and what I wanted so I, I, I probably the best thing I ever did was was join the Royal Marines and get that education a proper education the second best thing I ever did was for me was to leave at the right time almost at the top of a at the curve where you're taking everything with you while it's still fresh and then then having the drive and the the commitment to then push that into another direction and I think sometimes Potentially you can leave that too long or you can leave too soon and you don't have that. I mean, it's easy for me to say that because that's where I'm, I'm at now. You know, everyone's different. But potentially you could leave that too long before you make that jump um, and things become more difficult to get into. And also, I think the older you get, the more sort of chained down by the realities of life, mortgage, you know, family, commitments, debt. Um, and so it then becomes harder to step outside of the norm and do what you're interested in as opposed to doing what you need to do. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. So what was your situation when you left? Um, situation when I got out, I was 27. So I did 10, 11 years and I did another two years in the reserve service up in Glasgow. It's kind of like a, the Royal Marine Reserves, which are an amazing outfit which the Royal Marines could not function without. And it's a lot of people who leave the Marines will, will sort of go into there for a few years. And it still allows us to do some of the things that, that you would do in there, still have the camaraderie and that sort of uh, team building, uh, I guess team teamwork sort of scenario. Um, so I did that for a couple of years while I was working in Glasgow and I joined an organisation called Skill Force, which is ex-military people teaching in schools. Um, and so that was taking people pupils that were NEAT, which stands for not in education or training, I think it is, um, and so basically that was taking, if I don't know how correct it is to use this term, if you take the, the people that were not mainstream that could be taught, they were either super bright or super the other way, um, or they were just weren't academic like me and they needed positive male role models in their life and so skill force was that and we would take classes of, of um, children in school, like teachers, but we were first name terms and we were doing Duke of Edinburgh with them residential camps with them, first aid, all the sort of bits and bobs of low-level military stuff um, and basically teaching them discipline, respect um, and, and for myself, giving them this sort of bit of an education I had. Um, and so I did that for three years uh, and that's where I very much got into understanding more and, and trying to learn more about personal development um, and how, how your brain works and about goal setting and planning and actually uh, I suppose uh, it was then that I suddenly realised that you become what you think about and uh, you know it sounds a bit airy fairy I suppose but if I then look back through my life everything that I've done and achieved up to that point not including any of the stuff that I've done in the last 10 years um, then you know it, very, it became very clear that everything that I said I, I wanted or I was going to do it happened um, and so it's it's only on reflection that I eventually got to that point. Yeah, yeah, it's funny how things end up panning out by yeah. accident. So were you were you going on an expedition at this point? Yeah. So the first ex so in the Marines they teach you quite a lot of skills and you become quite handy at being an operator in the jungle, in the desert, in the high mountains, at altitude, um, basically every environment. Norway skiing sort of every year for X amount of months. So you become you become quite good at operating and surviving. And in, in, in the Marines, you can't just go and just grind through every day. You've got to be able to grind through the day and do a job. You've got to go out on recce's. You've got to get information in. You've got to take people out, you know, and get into observation posts. And and so you, you have to almost be, you almost have to, be at one with that environment. I hate that phrase, but you have to be completely at home in the jungle. You don't want to be thinking about uh, how do I put a hammock up again? How do I, you know, how do I set booby traps? How do I collect water? How do I do all these things? It's it's second nature because you've got a bigger picture to be thinking about. Um, and so I always had an interest in the Marines of uh, sort of get my skills up in the outdoors. That was the main reason why I joined. And so I, uh, the military have got very good uh, adventure training sort of uh, set up. So you can learn pretty much any 
expedition skills from kayaking to to rowing to climbing ice climbing they've got a training course for all of it and the reason that the military use adventures training that's their term for sort of exped type stuff is that you can't train someone in live firing operations with a live enemy um, unless you're at war so the closest thing that you can do to testing and training all these soft skills that matter when you're war fighting is to take people and, and push them slightly out of their comfort zone in and, and sort of stretch them and the way you do that is by putting them on a climbing wall is by taking them whitewater rafting or kayaking um, and what you end up doing is putting someone under slight pressure where they can then sort of realize and understand how to deal with that system you know the same fear that we get the first time you, you go on a big wall in your stomach and with the kit and all that stuff about trust and that stuff is directly transferable into war fighting and that's why the military do it is because it then gives you that base level you think that's it i felt this feeling before this is how i dealt with it my mouth's dry my legs are shaking my stomach's in knots that's not fear that's just like adrenaline i need to do something i need to be active i need to get at something um and so that's why they do it anyway so I spent quite a lot of my time in the military doing adventures, training courses, climbing, diving, skiing, right across the board. So I became very, very average at lots of things. <laughs> um, just basically a, a sort of jack of all trades and, and you know, master of none really, um, which has served me well at what I do now. Um, and so I then started leading expeditions for an organization called World Challenge at that time. So I was doing trips away in the summer, um, which was going to Bolivia for a month with 20 uh, sort of 18 year olds or whatever that was sort of just that they're coming to the end of their sort of higher education. Um, so, you know, which is weird when I think I started doing those when I was 24 and I think back now I was responsible at 24 for 20 kids on a month long expedition around Guyana. Um, but at the time, you know, I suppose at the time I look back and I think I know so much more now than I did then, but at the time I must have been qualified and trained and had the experience to do it. It depends how you look at it, I guess. You'd had an eight-year military career at 24. Yeah, 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 exactly, which is, yeah, most people are just joining at that yeah, point. Yeah, finishing uni. Yeah, um, and so uh, the, I guess with the, the expedition stuff, that sort of got me into thinking more about that as a job, but looking at the outdoor world, I knew that I just couldn't make enough money to do the things that I wanted to do by sort of working in, in the, for me personally, working in the outdoor industry. So I had a complete switch fire into, I sort of looked at what I could do to earn money, get time off that I could then up my skill set to then get me more employable in a way that would mean I could earn more money. So I went offshore uh, and got involved in rope access and inspection. So up into the North Sea doing two on, two off, um, which was amazing because you get paid a decent wage, but also more importantly, more valuable for me was that time off. That time off, I then went off every trip home. I'd come home, literally throw my kit in the washing machine and then pick up my climbing kit and I'd be off South America, Africa, all over the place and I'd be doing nothing hardcore. It was just the fact of getting off and doing stuff. Um, spending time in Alps learning how to climb and mountaineer uh, and so I spent the three years doing that and building up my skills to the point where I guess if you're being philosophical you could look at it and say when you're fully trained and prepped 
and you're ready mentally, then the right sort of opportunity comes up, you know that that's the time to take it. Um, and I guess that's kind of what happened with television work. I was asked if I could get a film crew inside a, an active volcano in the Congo, um, at which point I said yes. Um, and that was basically, you know, when someone gives you, you know, when someone opens a door and if you're not prepped and ready or trained and have done everything up to that point, then you don't really see what's behind it. When you're prepped and ready and you've got the thirst and the hunger to, to get at something and someone opens a door and you look behind it and you, it's like Pandora's box and you are in, and that's what happened with the volcano. It was like, wow, this whole other world of television. Because television was just something I watched. You know, I never thought, I didn't actually even compute that people made television at that point. It was just like a thing. Um, and it was like, wow, there's an entire world out there of adventure television that, that I didn't even know about. So what did you think when someone asked you to get some TV people into a volcano in the Congo? Did you think, oh yeah, sure, no problem? Or did you suddenly think, oh Jesus Christ, how am I going to... At the time I'd been running my rope access company for a while, so I, I, was, I was aware of how to set up a job and how to run a job, um, like on wind turbines or something like that. So I had a bit of that experience and... Um, I guess I had that confidence that came from the Marines and came from not having fucked up too much that, that you know, that had caused, that caused the problem. And so when I was first asked the initial thing, it was actually by a friend who runs a, a safety company uh, that work in television. And he sort of said, can you get a team of uh, scientists and filmmakers inside an active volcano? And so I'm like, yes, I definitely can do that. Didn't really think about it too much. We and obviously their job as the safety company, uh, my friend Alex, they do a lot of the planning and prep. But ultimately, it's myself that goes up there and, and rigs it, and then gets them inside it safely and out safely. Um, but I remember getting to the top. It's in the Congo, and at the time that's two thousand and ten, and at that time it was pretty tasty down there in eastern Congo and Goma. Um, so you're kind of planning to go into a sort of hostile environment, high risk environment, and then go into an even higher risk environment into the volcano. Um, it's near Gongo volcano in Goma, right on the border of Rwanda and, and Congo. And uh, a very long story cut short, by the time we got there and I got up to the top of it, I remember just standing and looking over the edge and massive lump in my throat. It's the biggest lava lake on earth. And it's one of the most terrifying places that I've ever been, bar none. And I just remember having this lump in my throat and there was, it, I was doing everything I could do to not cry because in my head I thought, I have bitten off way more than I can, way more than I can chew here. And I've got a team of filmmakers and BBC and it's cost a lot of money to come out here my confidence and my bravado has absolutely just shot me in the foot. And it's the first time I, I, I ever remember feeling that deflated and that terrified and that scared. More than fighting and, you know, being a sniper and doing that sort of thing, because you're, you're G'd up and you're ready. This was, I guess, in the, the adventure world, I'd sort of pitched myself at this point that I could do this job and I got up there and I just had all the worries and self-doubt that every other person has and I had 
200 bags and four tons of kit just landed at the top of the at the top of the volcano and it was you know that was it I had to get them in there um so I walked off and sorted myself out and it's the same as anything you know when you, you see that big task ahead of you the very start it's the worst you'll know it's the worst it's the intrepidation and the build up to everything and then you're there and actually that's when it counts as just getting stuck in and getting on with it same as any big big sort of task or any goal is breaking it down into the smaller chunks and right what do I need to do and what do I need to do in the next five minutes to make to make me not get found out in the yeah. next hour what do I need to do you know and then eventually that that confidence comes back and you you've got a good team behind you and you know that you know you're as best prepared as you can be at that time you know there may be better teams out there there may be better kit out there but the kit that you've got and the team that you've got that's it and that's the tools that you've got to work with um, and that was that was really was the the start of being involved in in television and film. I mean, I have thousands of questions about the Congo, but how was it getting from, you know, the airport to the top of that mountain? Because I was there in 2014 in exactly the same place in Bukavu and Goma, and there were four Pakistani UN soldiers killed three days before we arrived, and a bomb went off two days after we left. You know, and we drove about 20 miles total, so I don't know how the hell you got to the it's yeah um goma is pretty interesting it can be quite tasty at points um i've been in the volcano three times now what twice with the bbc and once with nat geo the first time that we went in 2010 it was very deaf hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Definitely um, quite edgy. Uh, there was quite a few rangers killed, obviously, on, in, with, in the Vrunga Park. Um, so I guess it's been made quite famous by the, the film uh, Vrunga. Um, but... 2010 was very definitely I ended up sort of held at gunpoint with another guy that I was rigging the volcano with and we I have to admit like in hindsight I didn't actually know how we were going to get out of it in my head we were sort of 100 meters from the the sea uh, not the sea sorry from um, Lake Kivu uh, myself and Mike who's another ex-marines were sort of doing the very quick risk assessments that you do when you're sort of trained in that thing of They've got chewing gum stuck in the end of their AK-47s. The magazine looks rusty. It's not cocked at the minute. How many seconds have I got if I can knock the weapons out of their hand and then run to the run to the lake and swim? You know, these are like, bang, quick risk assessments. But I have to say, Varunga is one of the most beautiful, amazing places on, on planet Earth, bar none. I think seven UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Democratic Republic of Congo. It's It's unfortunately just you know it's at tipping point most of the time and when that volcano erupted in 2002 there were quite a lot of people were um were killed by it and also they were still recovering from the um uh, i guess the the rwanda 
genocide, Hutu and the Tutsi genocide. So still, that area is is so is so volatile. In one sense, because you've got the biggest lava lake on earth and a huge chain of volcanoes, but also the the sort of geopolitical area um, and the people there, I guess, are um, are quite volatile. Um, but it's so I've been in three times now, three separate expeditions inside that volcano, and just this last one that I did last year for the BBC, I managed to get to the very very bottom of it, which is. Um, I've tried the last two times, couldn't get down. Um, and so, yeah, I managed to get down to the bottom of it, which is, I think, it's probably only me and one other guy, two other guys have done that. Right to the edge of the lake? Right down into the bottom, yeah. So what are you wearing? Uh, you don't actually need the, the silver suit at that point because you're, you're still 100 metres away from the, the lava lake. And actually it's still quite high up you know the, the lava lake drains and rises and it's about 40 odd meters down it's hot but you you don't really need that that silver suit um i've worked on quite a few volcanoes now and really the volcanologists really really use them unless they're going up collecting lava samples from you know a stream of of lava um but you, you just wear a normal outdoor gear they look good on telly though yeah exactly yeah well, exactly get the silver suit on for picture <laughs> Um, so where did it all go from there? You know, you got back from the Congo and clearly you didn't mess the first job up. Yeah, um, I scared myself massively, um, but we were successful. We got a film crew inside the volcano, down inside it, not just using like rigging skills, but in my head it was like the military part of it. The, you know, we had two kilometers of rope rigged out from the top down into the second level of where we were working. Um, and the film crew would come down and they would stay there for a day or two days or however long. And I would be doing shuttle runs up to the top on the ropes. And, and on this last trip, because I'd done it so many times, I did 14 runs carrying kit from the bottom to the top, inside to the top, uh, in about 20 hours or something like that. And it's technical rope climbing. So you're like dew marring. There's lots of bits where you're sort of traversing and the entire time there are huge like tons of rock coming down by the end of it you get kind of blasé by it but i mean it's i've got some videos of some huge rock falls like one of the biggest ones actually was probably 10 15 tons of rock coming down um and so you i get what became apparent was it's not about just the rigging skills and it's not about the medic skills it's about that courage determination unselfishness cheerfulness and adversity commando spirit it's about you know getting up to the top when you're knackered and then making the crew their food and sorting their water out and making sure they're all happy because they're filming tomorrow you know it's my job just to get them there but they get down there and they've got to film they've got batteries to sort out um and so it then became i guess it was a good learning point for me it, was, it wasn't just about i turn up and i do my job and then i go home it's like being in the marines you're in it you're in it from the minute you wake up to the minute you go to bed if you go to bed you'll know from from being on on a big wall or on x bed like it's just non-stop and the less you do the longer stuff takes yeah i could go i'm not picking that bag up and taking it someone else can do that but that's like an extra two hours that you're not sleeping because you have to stay up and man the radio or or whatever. So it became quite apparent early on in that expedition in 2010 that all the skills that I had learned in the military that I thought were completely untransferable, you know, to go from being a sniper in the Royal Marines to what 
I, you know, I, at that time I didn't really know what was possible, but everything, all those core ethos and your fitness and your mental health and stability then are the key building blocks for then pushing into another career, which is, you know, in, in television, it is like herding cats, you know, you have a film crew out on location, they're all very experienced and super capable. And they are, you know, they've, I thought I'd done quite a lot when I left the Marines until I started meeting camera guys and sound guys and directors that have been in, you know, 20 countries in the last year filming wars, filming expeditions. Um, so it's good, humbling. Um, but that gave me the sort of, it opened it, you know, say that the door opened, I saw the opportunity and then I then got back and I, I put everything into that, that I put into being a sniper and joining the Marines at 16. It was like, what do I need to do? What are the, what qualifications do I need? What experience do I need? What, who are the people that I need to meet? And, and basically came up with a big game plan um, and then just put that into action. And, you know, the same as you guys, when, it's easy to sit on the outside and say, well, that's, you know, you're lucky because you had this or you were that. It very definitely, where I am now is going to be short-lived. I am completely aware of that. But when that stops, I'll move on to whatever the next thing is. The next door opens and I'll see that opportunity and I'll go at that as hard as I've done everything else. But I guess that door was opened. I got the opportunity and, and then I then worked out exactly what it was that I needed to do. So it's the same as everything else goal planning or, or sort of setting your life up plan people spend more time planning the summer holiday than they do their life you know it's like what do you actually want to do with your life most people can't answer that whereas I very definitely having been in the military and been in a few scrapes uh, I guess war fighting you, you get that sort of distilled and honed what is it that you actually want to achieve and for me getting in you know I loved outdoors love expeditions if I was to speak to my 15-year-old self now that was joining the Marines, I'm doing everything now that I joined the Marines for. Weird, convoluted route to get here. And like I say, I don't know how long that will last. But at the minute, you know, it's it's exactly what I want to be doing. Um, and nothing else comes into it. It's not about money. It's not about time away. I do, it's about doing what I wanted to do. And, and I've got there through probably the last eight years of going on courses, learning stuff, making mistakes, um, and, and trying to meet the right people. That's the key. And I, I suppose the biggest part about expeditions is not being a wanker. You probably can't use that, but <laughs> the big, the biggest part about being on expedition isn't actually about all the technical stuff. It's about being that bloke that gets up at two o'clock in the morning and helps his mate find his boot, or it's just that bloke that you want to spend two days stuck in a tent with. You know, the rest of it you can make work. You can just grind through so much stuff. It's very difficult to grind through someone who is not suitable or adapted to being in those extreme environments. And that, that can, you know, one bad apple in a team of 10 can absolutely catastrophically ruin an expedition or a filming trip. Um, and, I, you know, I've seen it happen before. It's so. Ultimately, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is, is, you know, help other people get on with it and, and just, you know, cheerfulness and adversity. Be chipper because everyone else is having a very difficult time as well. And I, I think one of the biggest things probably also is is compassion. You know, it's someone's having a bad day. It's easy to, to grind on them, really easy to grind on them 
you know, it's especially coming from a military background, you could hammer someone for not being able to carry as much as me. But it will only be a day or two before it's me. It's only going to be another two days before I've just been nailed by heat exhaustion or stung in the throat by a hornet or fallen down and, and snapped my ankle or injured myself. And so I guess it's, it's about the interpersonal skills and the expedition mentality. Yeah, and that's one of the things that always occurs to me in an expedition is it's almost like being a soldier. You are, you're a team member first and you're a specialist second. Yeah. You're a cameraman or you're a rigger or you're a lead climber, but you're there as part of a team. Yeah. And it is amazing how quickly you can bring it down if you're not fully involved in that team. Yeah, and it's the, the other part is, is understanding what someone else's job is. Me and you on a wall and I'm just about to do something. I'm like, why are you not filming this? Like, and, and you'll be going, well, I've got three cards that I'm downloading, changing over, I'm changing batteries, I'm also charging batteries and the lens is steamed up. It, it, like, that's, that's for me to understand. And, and also likewise, um, if the lead climber or the caver or the diver you know, is, is saying, why is this not ready? You know, why have you not rigged this? And you're like, well, it takes quite a lot of time to do this to make it safe. So it's, it's, it's that understanding um, of what everyone else's job, everyone else is there for, you know, to do a job and to help the, the team get to the metaphorical summit of, of what it is that they're trying to do. So what's the lifestyle like then? What's the day to day? Um, the lifestyle of, I don't even know what my job title is, but in a day and age where social media, which I have to do as well, is, is basically taking over the world. Um, I guess someone would say explorer, adventure or something like that. I wouldn't say that. I say I work in safety. You know, high-vis vest, clipboard and pen, boring. Can't swing on the back of your chair. Uh, the lifestyle is... Uh, first of all, it's a lifestyle that's been completely designed by me. Like I haven't landed here by luck or anything else. Um, and so I've designed it in a way that works best for me where I am used to working away for long periods of time and I'm used to having time off. That's it. Um, the time off isn't time off because I'm grinding, I'm on and, and getting into sort of trying to get in front of people, speak to people, pitching ideas, you know, pushing sort of trying to, I guess, I guess the whole time you're just being busy and you're getting at it. That's what I'm doing. You know, I'm I'm thinking about the next idea and I'm self-promoting and I'm you know making contacts and you know like speaking to you is is you never know where that next job's going to come from. You never know where that next uh, connection's going to come from. And if you look back, it's easy to see the the sort of link between all the different jobs. But actually, the link between all of them is that. I don't come back home and sit on my backside and wait for the phone to ring for the next one. And like I said there, if this all stops for me, then I'll do something else. I'll get into something else and I'll get stuck into that just as hard as I have done this. Um, so the lifestyle that I have at the minute is is pretty decent. It's I spend quite a lot of the time out of the country traveling the world. Um, it's not as glamorous as it seems. Television is anything but uh, glamorous you know if you imagine you know working in West Africa during the Ebola epidemic a couple of years ago or I don't know doing a diving job where you're sort of in the cold water all day or you're up at altitude you know it, it's amazing stuff that we're doing and that we're filming but the the reality is is that you're doing 18 19 20 hour days very manual very 
very hard graft, which is what I like and is, which is why it suits me um, and it keeps my mind busy and keeps my body busy. Um, so when you're away, you work hard. Like we did three months last year embedded with the on and off with most of the, the sort of hardcore drugs cartels in the world, Sinaloa cartel, Cali cartel, Medellin cartel, some of the baddest, baddest people that you can imagine that walk the face of this earth we were embedded with uh, for three months. And so it's very exciting and very dangerous in another way to a volcano or a killer virus that you can't see. Um, but ultimately the effect on my body and brain is the same, you know, I guess I'm getting off on it. I'm not getting off on it, but it's what my body needs and brain needs to function and to feel connected and part of something. Um, and I guess that's that's what I need. You know, I've I've had that from the Marines, and it's it could be a bit of an affliction, really, where you have that high intensity, fast paced lifestyle. You're drafted every eighteen months. You're on a desert tour. You're on a jungle tour. You're fighting in the Middle East. You're, you know, you're then going doing some adventure training and some expeditions. And so, um, I guess what I've got now is is perfect for me. Um, I just don't know how. I mean, it's a difficult lifestyle, you know as well. It's hard keeping friends and relationships going because you I don't mean sort of like close relationships, but just friends, friends who don't get the fact that you've been away and you, know, and you come back and they ask you, how was, how was this trip? Well, I had a gun held at my head and told they were going to, going to kill me, you know, if we were tracking them and I was tracking them. So potentially they were going to kill me or, you know, we got turned upside down in the raft and I nearly drowned it. You know, like you, all your stories are fairly epic, but you end up dumbing them down when you come back home. And, and, and it's yeah. difficult to to keep that going with, with your mates that aren't in that industry. And I guess you then ultimately become more insular with the people that work in, in that adventurous, expeditionary sort of lifestyle. You, you'll know the same. It's Like I said earlier, the bonds that are forged on expedition and warfighting are without doubt second to none you cannot replicate that any other way i don't think well i had it when we came back from the congo i was 23 and we'd been we'd been held at gunpoint on a road between bukavu and goma and it was the first time i'd ever seen a gun and there's some dude with an ak-47 who's demanding passports and you know i've got long floppy hair and a clean shaven face and i'm thinking how have i ended up here i've just graduated from university and we got home from that trip and i went to tesco's to do my shopping and sat in the milk aisle and cried and, you know, I rang my friends and I'm like, I just, oh, does anybody want to go for a beer? And it's like, oh, I can't, I'm busy, I'm at work, whatever. I thought, I'm going to ring the guy I was on the trip with. And he was like, oh, yeah, come round now. Drove straight round to his house, sat there for two hours, talked about it, left feeling, oh, yeah, no, actually, he gets it, they get it. That's, that's the thing is that is uh, very important for us ex-military people. A good friend of mine, Jason Fox, who I did, actually did the Narcos um, shoot with, um, we are very much about being open and talking about stuff because if you don't, like you come off an expedition and someone's injured or worse, killed or even just the hardship of an expedition, this is the hard part. You go and you do two months on expedition, you come back and you're doing the big shop and you're in the supermarket and you're trying to work out what cereal you want. Why is there so much choice? Like, do I want milk? Do I want almond milk? Is that ruining the environment? I have just come from somewhere <laughs> where I've just seen absolutely devastated so I should probably have the oat milk, but is that carton made from the same trees that I saw being illegally logged in Madagascar? So 
you come back and you have a much wider view of the world and you a lot of the time don't have anyone to share that with and that can be as as difficult you know oftentimes i wish that i wasn't as motivated and wasn't as active in getting out and seeing the world and and, and traveling to these places because you know you, it does affect you mentally and you need to have strong mental game being on expedition isn't a lot of the time about your physical fitness it helps but it's about mental game it's about overcoming fear and hardship it's about overcoming the boredom and monotony of having a normal life when you come back from an expedition which i know we all suffer from in one way or another it's very difficult and that's so that that lifestyle then means you're more insular with the people that do the same thing as you and it then becomes uh, i mean it's it's great i love it but you know, you, you very definitely sort of lose touch with the mates that you were at school with because they're not doing a similar thing to you. And it's it's very hard to talk to someone about what it's like to have two coked up blokes putting pistols to your head and telling them they're going to kill you and dump you out in the desert. It's very hard to come back and chat to someone about that who... Has, people just laugh, sit in the pub and, ha, 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 that uh, sounds yeah, horrible. Or, or what it's like to be in, in an avalanche or, you know, a huge rockfall or a huge natural disaster where... You know, I, oh, yes, where well, you see them, um, it's difficult to have that that chat with people. But uh, I think on that count, the mental health side of things is is massive. Um, I've recently spent ten days locked in an underground bunker for a BBC documentary on, I guess, sleep deprivation and body clock, uh, and get round to the mental health thing. So I was locked underground on my own in the dark, uh, so for ten days. That, to me, at the end of that 10 days was, I could I could dig into the, the sort of marine part of me, which made me sort of grind through it and grizz through it and get to the end of it. If the time had been undisclosed, I was put in that hole and that was it. I would have probably buckled at 10, 11 days anyway because of the three things which I think are quite important for everyone's mental health is get outside, see daylight, speak to people, interact with people and train. That's it. And that's, I spent 10 days in the bunker and I came out and I was like, wow, that's to me. Cause I was at the start of about to spiral. I think most people would probably spiral after two or three days, four days. I don't know. Um, but complete isolation is not being in your house on your phone on the internet looking out the window because I'm interacting now with that London bus and the bridge and all that other stuff. When you're just stuck in one room in the dark, you're not interacting with anything other than yourself. And I think what I learned from that going back to the expedition side of it is that, you know, by being outside, interacting in the environment and, and training, staying fit, healthy body, healthy mind keeps you from going into that that spiral because it would be easy to come back off an expedition where you have all those three things and then you come back and you just sort of sat in your your house feeling sorry for yourself and not speaking to people that were on the expedition with you so i think mental health is a, a huge thing for all of us and, and you look at anyone who's doing big expedition stuff a lot of names that that we could reel off here you know a lot of them are tricky characters super motivated super selfish want to just go out there and, and, and absolutely smash it. You know, and there's dark times for everyone. You, you know people, all of them, that, that have that, and it's the highs and lows. So the lifestyle 
you know, it's highs and lows a lot of the time and it's about how to curtail the highs to a manageable level and how to how to bring the lows up to a normal level. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated and it gets quite heavy, but they're all selfish pursuits at the end of the day. Going on these trips, I mean, we call it work, which helps justify it. But really, we still do it because we love it and it's still inherently selfish and it causes problems at home, distant from family. That is the one thing that, you know, being in the Royal Marines is incredibly selfish. It, it, it teaches you to be incredibly selfless with the boys that you're working with and cheerfulness and adversity and unselfishness you would always make sure your mate was sorted before you were but it makes you so driven and so focused in the things that you're trying to achieve in or out of work that it can become quite a selfish pursuit uh, as expeditions are yeah so what does a down day what does the term down day mean to you um so I live in London, so a down day isn't what it used to be like going and hitting the mountains or single track on on um, on the mountain bike after work. Or so in London, my down day would be running, clear my head in the morning, and a bit of gym in the afternoon, and reading. And yeah, I guess I try not to have a, a routine when I get back. I'm always fairly. I keep myself busy, and if I've not got anything on, then I'll try and organise to speak to someone about a certain job coming up or get myself busy with planning um, but I am very good in the last two years that work's been so hectic of when I'm off being off which I never used to be um, so like if I was going on holiday uh, with my girlfriend then you know then I'm going to sit on the beach and I'm going to read a book for four or five days and, and not climb not paddle not dive just sit and read a book and catch up with yeah with my girlfriend I guess do you manage to do that guiltlessly I do now. I don't know whether that's because I'm 41 and getting old and <laughs> decrepit, but um, I I do now. I can I can switch off for a small amount of time, four or five days, recollect my thoughts. I suppose sort of recover. This year's been hard. We've done. I think we've done ten, ten expeditions this year. Most of them between three weeks and and four weeks, and it's like Arctic desert two or three in the jungle in South America back to the high mountains in the Himalayas and and so you're kind of bouncing all over Mexico you're kind of bouncing all over the world different time zones and you know the, the whole time you're doing it you're like I can't wait to get back and just do nothing which you know so when I do get back I then think about you know when I'm over somewhere carrying 80 kilo bags somewhere yeah in terms of adventure and kind of the adventurous side of things, what have been the highlights of the last couple of years? Um, the highlights for the last couple of years have been, number one was was probably rowing across the Atlantic. And it's it's not, it's the same as war fighting. It's 95% fairly tedious, boring, monotony, and then 5%, 100% terror. Um, and that's, you know, it was... We rode from Portugal, five of us from Portugal to Venezuela. So I believe we were the first people to roll mainland to mainland. But actually for us, it was more about sorting, you know, some PTSD issues out and and everyone sort of rowing away from their own demons on that boat. It's quite a, quite a snaggy boat um, as far as demons go. Um, and so everyone was sort of fighting their own battle on that. So that was up there. That was, that was definitely... 
definitely one of the top ones. Um, and then I guess I've been very lucky to to sort of fall into work with Steve Backshaw, who's you know preeminent sort of. Uh, well, I mean, he's up there. He's he's one of the top. I have to get this right. I always say naturist, but that's people that get their kit off. <laughs> Steve's one of the Steve's one of the top um, naturalists, you know, on the planet. He's he's um, his knowledge and experience on expeditions and with wildlife of every sort is just breathtaking, bamboozling. Um, and I've been lucky enough to to fall in with Steve and his team on. Uh, the last two expeditions that we did for the BBC were where Steve um, did the first ascent of the, the Balian River in West Papua New Guinea and we did a first routing in the Tapuis in uh, Venezuela and sailed off Angel Falls which was pretty good um, and then off the back of that Steve asked me back to, to come and help on so in a support role of, of helping doing all the stuff that I do on expedition normally um, and so they're doing a, an expedition series, which is, um, I can't say too much about it, but it's 10 world firsts that Steve's doing. So whether it's climbing, mountaineering, cave diving, paddling, uh, what else? Did I say climbing? And sinkholes and caves. So it's, it's pretty, it's been pretty full on the last, the last year. And every single one of those trips have been mind-blowingly good, breathtaking, hard work. Um, but yeah, they've been pretty up there. Okay, so if we can, let's talk a bit about... Can you talk about West Papua? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, what was that like? West Papua, West Papua New Guinea, so it's the Indonesian side of Papua New Guinea, the, the island. Um, it's one of the most beautiful places on earth. It's also one of the... Not one of the most dangerous places, but it's, it's a dangerous place to... Um, to sort of work in, it, it's it's everything about West Papua is boys' own adventure. It's jungle, big rivers, people with bow and arrows. You know, angry, angry tribes. People that they're angrier with a lot of the mining and and illegal logging operations that are going on. So that's the first thing as a film crew and, and Steve, um, we have to be aware of is that they don't know the difference between us and the people that are coming in and absolutely ripping their their forests apart. Um, but Steve, this, this again, this is Steve Backshaw's expedition. Was he was over in West Papua twenty years ago, maybe longer, um, and it was his dream to to paddle the full length of the the Balam River, Balam River. Um, it's like five hundred odd kilometers, I think it is. And so Steve, so the way it works is Steve uh, is a super competent climber paddler. So he'll put together his kayak team, um, which is world-class paddlers, uh, and Steve. And the idea is we get in at the top um, in a place called Habima, and we paddle all the way down to, I think it's Agats. Um, and then that's so why I'm in the support. My job is always support role, so I'm sort of looking after people, mainly behind the camera, from a sort of, whether it's bodyguarding, in high risk situations or whether it's technical safety and diving or climbing or rope work or caves or that side of things um, and so I was in the filming raft uh, and that's so you've got Steve and the guys paddling and then you have two support boats and that's full of all the, the sort of filming kit safety kit 
Um, I was medic on that trip and we had another paramedic in uh, in the main sort of location that we'd call out. So uh, I'm a medic, but not paramedic. So I sort of can deal with patching people up in trauma. Um, and so, yeah, that was it. You know, we had two safety boats um, and then the guys paddling and we got there and it had been raining and the river was absolutely monstrous to the point where the first time Steve and I saw it when we did the helicopter recce was, you know, I feel sick. This is death on a stick. Um, and ultimately, you know, the pad the kayak has paddled quite big sections of it, but it was so dangerous in lots of places that we, in, you know, in one place we had to, we held up for about four days while it was raining and the river was monstrous, huge standing waves, brown, frothy mess. Um, and so we, there was lots of times where we were just, as you know, on expedition, camped up in our hammocks at the side of the river, waiting for it to, to go down. Um, we hopped quite a few of the, the big bits because the, the canyons are, you know, there's some canyons on there that are 10 kilometers long, grade five water from start to finish and big grade five volume. Um, and that, you know, even the, the sort of kayakers, uh, they're, you know, like I say, world-class kayakers were like, we're not going in, that's death on the stick. So a lot of the time um, we were sort of either waiting, then they would paddle sections of it or we'd take the boats out and portage sections and sometimes we'd have to, there's no other option but to heli past a section of complete impasse. Um, but West Papa is one of those places where when when you meet the locals there, the sort of first uh, initial reaction is is at the top level so it's like they're coming at you to well we, we got pulled out the river several times with 20 blokes armed homemade guns bow and arrows spears um, pig spikes um, and it didn't happen just once and so it's so it's almost like it starts at that level where you're potentially going to be killed or or at least you know put in grave danger and then you work down to can we you know, and we asked permission. It's obviously filming. Everything's done well above board, but um, it's so tribal down there between areas and between different. And we don't know what we're getting into. You know, we're paddling a river, and you're going through a turf war. Or you're going through. You know, you're trying to get into a cave system that's owned by another village, and they they give you access to it. And this village then turn up on the day that you've. I was on on the ropes with another guy just about to abseil into a sinkhole, and. Uh, about four guys come up with machetes about to chop the ropes with us on them um, because the other village had said we could use the, the sinkhole that we're abseiling into to explore um, and it took basically Steve saved the day with, with a lot of it because Steve speaks Bahasa um, which is a language they speak down there so he spent a lot of time down there and it was, it was him and the fixer that ended up calming that situation down but it's like flash to bang they would call it in the marines you know it's like straight away at the highest level and then work down um I imagine you'd zoom out of that pretty quickly yeah no I'd, I'd just gone over the edge so i was yeah i was back up and in, and in, into trying to sort the situation out <laughs> um but actually it was the same trip where steve and i we because of that situation we couldn't explore these huge dolines these sinkholes we ended up having to go and explore this other cave system and just as an example of sort of what happens we we go into this cave it's we're about seven or eight hours into it and quite a long way in and down and it, steve's filming a bit right at the very end and uh 
he's second last to come off this sort of shelf about the height eight or nine feet he sort of slides down and 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 i fall off and we're eight hours in there and i sort of got my head talked to her and i land i snap my ankle i snapped the i now know in hindsight that i ripped two of the three ligaments off my foot i didn't thankfully because of the amount of ankle injuries i had i haven't uh, i didn't break my ankle but it's as good as and steve just gave me that look of you better not have broken your ankle and walked off because they, they all they had to do they had stuff to sort out he, it, it was that look that was like you've seen it on Expedition before where it's like make sure that isn't what we all think it is you know, everyone heard it snap um, and ultimately that was sort of five days six days into a five week trip um, and it was it was bad I went it's, it's, you're talking through all the signs and symptoms of what had happened and I went completely into shock my vision shut down I felt sick I got the sweats I had to sit down and wrap my foot and self-administer quite a lot of drugs and we filmed it this was the end of the cave and then it took us probably you know, 12 or 15 hours to get out and sort of <laughs> hobbling out of there um but thankfully that's that's really all that's that's happened you know and that expedition was amazing to see that part of the world and also it's it was a dream for steve as well to to do that first descent there um but it's the same with all these expeditions. You never know what you're going to see when you get there. You plan and you can come up with all the best case scenarios and then, you know, everyone has a plan till you get punched in the face, basically. And it was very difficult. We arrived there when they were having big arguments between the West Papuan people and the Indonesians. So there was a free West Papua movement and there was a lot of sort of fighting going on. I'm not sure what level of fighting, but it meant that for, for for days and days at a time we'd be stuck in one of the small local hotels we were working in or stuck in the jungle and not able to come out because of what was happening and the civil unrest but yeah Papua amazing amazing country West Papua it doesn't sound like it's calmed down much since you were yeah I, no, I've, I've not really been across what's happening down there but I would imagine there's a lot of tension between West Papua and the Indonesians because I guess the West Papuans want it to be part of Papua New Guinea, not part of Indonesia. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's so much more we could talk about. Obviously, don't really have time. So I guess what we'll do is hopefully do another one on one of those down days one day. Thanks very much. I know it's. I, I have a tendency to ramble and jump all over the place and you're going to have to do quite a good edit job on it. No, I don't think so. Thank you for listening. This podcast is produced by Cold House in association with Sidetrack magazine. For more amazing stories of adventure and exploration, check out Sidetrack.com. To read more about what Aldo gets up to, you can find a few links in the show notes at theadventurepodcast.co.uk. This podcast is hosted by Matt Pycroft and produced by Pip Saunders and Tom Carr Griffin. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at info at theadventurepodcast.co.uk.